A special thank you to everyone who is tuning in to Lullaby the Fear podcast. If this is your first time and you love the show, then please leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts to become a true Fear Cult ambassador. It supports the show for free and motivates me to research deeper cases. Sweet dreams. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? simply disappears. The other two died. Hello, hello, my pretties. It's your host, Ashley Lana, your certified nightmare prescriber and your non-destructive cult leader. How is everyone doing this evening? I'm super excited especially for the next two episodes, because they are very special. They are in honor of you, the listeners, the Fear Cult Ambassadors. I adore you all so much because you're so positive and you're supportive. And I was blessed to have just done an interview for an entrepreneur magazine, and I dedicated the special thanks to you, the Fear Cult. So stay tuned for that. I'm really excited to share it with you. Every so often over Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Slasher, I ask you guys what cases you would like me to examine. And then I tally them up, and every three months I put them together in a poll, and the top three most requested, I have you guys choose which one you want to hear for the next case. And whichever case receives the most votes gets an Ashley Lana deep examination. So with that being said, welcome to Lullaby. Last week was a worst of the worst episode. Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Auschwitz angel of death, and he performed countless horrific experiments on World War II victims, all in the name of eugenics to create the Nazis' perfect race. And thank you to everyone for your kind words and respect for the victims of that case because it was such an intricate examination to cover. This week, as I said, is a fear cult most requested case. The top three most requested were John Wayne Gacy, Edmund Kemper, and Richard Ramirez. Everyone voted over Instagram, Twitter, and Slasher, and two came up so close on top that I thought I would do them both. John Wayne Gacy and Richard Ramirez both came up on top. Overall, Richard Ramirez did win, but I have big plans for that episode, so I will do the runner-up first, The Killer Clown. Now, I am going to say this crystal clear. Yes, the next two episodes are extremely popular cases. I study true crime. I am fully aware of this. But I respect everyone's rights to discuss whatever cases they want. And I do have listeners who are new to true crime. Because the fear cult wanted these two cases, you guys are going to get them. Because I gave you what you guys want. I am more than happy to examine it for you because a little dark psychological examination never hurt anyone. There are also two guest cameos in this episode, and they are Fear Cult ambassadors. They are not podcasters. So you hear that, Fear Cults? You have the opportunity to be in some of the dramatizations if you are willing to do it. So, get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of rape, crimes against children, mental and physical abuse, and murder. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It was a beautiful summer's day at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue. The sound of joyous laughter and conversations filled the air as the routine neighborhood block party was in full swing. The host was always the same man, and he loved to take the spotlight. Normally, he would dress up in themed costumes, such as historical American fashion, with white wigs. This time, he decided to dress up as his personal favorite character. Boys and girls, it's me, Pogo the Clown! Look what I have for everyone! Balloons! Who wants a balloon? Would you like, young man? Red, please. 
please? Oh, you're so polite. What color would you like, beautiful princess? Can I have a blue one? Oh, blue's my favorite color, too. Oh, Hoga, I want you to come home with me. Oh, I can't go home with you. Your parents probably wouldn't like it. But maybe you'll come home with me. <laughs> the clown walked over to his bag of tricks and pulled out a plethora of props. Everyone was enjoying the simple card tricks, the magic hat, and disappearing coin axe. Everyone except a teenage boy. And what about you, you strapping young man? Would you like a balloon? I'm good. Oh, why don't... I thought everybody loved balloons. The only thing that fills me with less joy than balloons is clowns. Oh, that makes Pogo a very, very sad clown. How about a magic trick? Yeah! Do you boys and girls want to see a magic trick? Yeah! I'm going to reach into my bag of special props, and I'm going to pull out a very special pair of handcuffs. I'm going to get this trapping young man to put them around my wrist, behind my back, and Pogo's going to do his best to get out of them. So here you go, young man. The clown turned around and wiggled his hands behind his back. The teenage boy cautiously locked the restraints around the man's wrists and took a step back. They're nice and tight behind my back. Now, I'm going to try to get them out. One, two, three! second part of the magic trick, we're going to put them on this strapping young teenager. This, this better not be some sort of stupid gimmick to make me feel stupid. Don't worry. As the clown locked the boy's wrists, he leant in so only he could hear. <laughs> Don't worry. All the little good boys love this trick. This is the cruel true story of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. John Wayne Gacy Jr. was born on March 17, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois, United States. He was the second born of three children to John Stanley Gacy, who worked as an auto repair mechanic, and Marion Elaine Robinson. The Gacy family were considered to be in the upper middle class. John was very close with his mother and his two sisters, Karen and Joanne. The siblings would enjoy bonding and walking their dogs in the neighborhood on their spare time together. John's relationship with his father was turbulent from the start. John Sr. was an aggressive alcoholic who frequently physically and mentally abused him and his mother. John's father would constantly bully his son for not being masculine enough. After all, he was named after the Western Hollywood icon, John Wayne, who was considered to be a figure of American masculinity. To his father, John Wayne Gacy would never live up to the name that he was given, and instead, his father referred to him as a sissy. John was an overweight and non-athletic child who preferred hobbies that his father considered feminine, such as gardening and cooking. John also enjoyed playing dress up with his sisters by wearing his mother's dresses and undergarments, which only caused his father to force him into participating in more masculine activities. John later claimed in future interviews that he suffers from congenital heart defects that resulted in blood clots that would cause him to pass out if he overexerted himself doing physical activities like sports. When John Wayne Gacy was a child, his father would often spend lots of time in the basement alone, where he would drink. The rest of the family was prohibited from entering the area. It is recalled that John and his sisters would sometimes hear their father speaking in different voices from the floorboards. Occasionally, John Sr. would bring his son into the basement, and they would build and repair objects for their home. Whenever his son would make a mistake or not understand the instructions, his father would humiliate him for not being a man. The physical abuse started at the early age of four years old, with a leather belt and other objects. At one point, his father even knocked him unconscious with a broomstick. John Wayne explained that his father was extremely domineering and drank a lot, saying, quote, He was abusive to my mother and me, but I never swung at my dad, because I loved him for what he stood for. One time, John Sr. blasted through the basement door in a rage and began beating his wife in front of the children. John Sr. knocked out some of his wife's front teeth, and when she ran from his grasp, he knocked her out in the streets. In multiple interviews, John Wayne Gacy denied any allegations of sexual assault from his father. 
According to John, the abuse was from members outside of his household. In 1947, when John was only five years old, he and his mother decided to go for a visit at a neighboring friend's house. The friend had a 15-year-old mentally handicapped daughter who brought John upstairs into her bedroom and began sexually assaulting him. In his memoir, John Wayne Gacy recalled the incident, writing, quote, while the rest of the kids were playing or taking a nap after lunch, this older girl said that she would wash over me and we went upstairs. She was mentally retarded and 15 at the time. While playing house in one of the bedrooms, she took off all my clothes and was fondling me and tickling me, me being too young to know what was going on. Downstairs, both the mothers thought that their kids were being too quiet and went to investigate. When they came upstairs, they walked into the room where we were and they saw her playing with my dingling. After her mother came in yelling and grabbing the girl, she hit her several times while yelling at what she was up to. My mother came over to me and she asked what I was doing with my clothes off or something to that nature. And she got me dressed and took me downstairs. I was scared as I thought I was gonna get hit too. I was told not to be taking my clothes off with girls and to sit down there with them until we left. I had told them that the girl said it was all right for her to take my clothes off, end quote. John never understood at that age what was wrong with the incident. His parents only told him that it was dirty and wrong. After that incident, there were reports of John allegedly sexually abusing neighborhood kids as early as 1949, when Gacy was only seven years old. In 1950, when John was eight years old, he claimed that he was sexually assaulted again, this time by a 30-year-old man who had been a friend of his father's. During one spring day, the man asked John if he'd like to go for ice cream. John wrote about the incident saying, quote, I went with the man in his car and after the second stop, he asked me if I had seen last week's wrestling show. I said, yes. And he said that he wanted to show me the new hold in his car. He moved out from behind the steering wheel closer to me and told me to bend down and put my head underneath his leg, which I did. He held me between his legs for several minutes, tightly so that I could not move. And in fact, I had tears in my eyes. When he had seen that, he let me go, end quote. John was left more confused than anything, never mentioning it to his parents. After a couple weeks, the man came back and took him out for ice cream again. He told John that he had learned some new wrestling moves and wanted to show him in the car. According to John, it was the same hold that was between his legs. This happened again a few weeks later. Then the final time, John was playing outside when he seen the man pull up to his house. John ran and hid later confiding in his mother that he was scared of his father's friend and did not want to see him again. John Wayne Gacy recalled the following, quote, the next time he came around on Saturday, my dad was home. I stayed in the house and dad went over and talked with him. And from what I can understand was heresy. Dad told this man to stay away from me or he would call the police. With that, he was around a few more times to see the building finished, but never came in the house again. That's all that happened but I've never forgotten it from the age of eight and a half. I still remember the man wasn't too tall. He was middle-aged, semi-bald, dark, heavy glasses with a mustache and a little overweight. It was a two-door car, light blue, and I think it was a new Chevy. It was newer than my dad's, as in 1950, he had a 46 Chevrolet four-door. When John was 11 years old, he was struck in the head by a swing and it rendered him unconscious. At the hospital, the doctor diagnosed him with having a blood clot in his brain. This injury caused him to suffer blackouts until it was discovered when he was 16. Once discovered, John was prescribed medication that stopped the fainting. At 12 years old, John joined the Boy Scouts, which he did not enjoy. He stated that the only thing he learned from the entire experience was how to tie a tourniquet knot. This knot would be the only knot he utilized to restrain his future victims. He felt out of place and he felt that his interests differed from the other boys his age. John wasn't attracted to girls and he would often fantasize at night about his male friends. He knew that his father would beat him up at possibly knowing that his son was homosexual. His mother, Marion Gacy, even told police later that if her husband had found out about his sexuality, that he probably would have killed him. John even stated that he felt like his father could read his mind. And deep down, he was ashamed for not being good enough for his own father. He even considered joining the priesthood. Until then, he lived a seemingly regular life without, of course, considering the abuse from his alcoholic father. During the first few months of 1962, when John was 20 years old, he dropped out of school. He had not had a job and his father was pushing him relentlessly. 
His father loaned him money so he could buy a vehicle. Each month, John would work odd jobs to pay his father back $100 a month. By March of that same year, John had fallen behind on some of the payments, and his father threatened to take his vehicle away from him. John packed up and ran away to Las Vegas to stay with his cousin, with only $136 to his name. On the long drive, he got tired and stopped at the motel that cost him $35. The following day, he went to a casino in an attempt to win some cash from $25, with no luck. The next day, John continued his journey. The blazing heat was so bad and he could not roll down his windows that he eventually had to stop on the road. Pondering his recent life choices, he sat there alone. Eventually, he suffered heat stroke and passed out. When he awoke sometime later, a police officer was dragging him from his vehicle. The sound of an ambulance echoed through the air, and all John can think about was how he could not possibly afford an ambulance ride to the hospital. The EMS declared that he had to see a doctor and that the county could cover the bill. He only had to cover the ambulance ride, which cost him $34. In the series of events over the course of three days, John was only left with $7. Being short on money, John needed a quick job if he planned to continue his trip to Las Vegas to stay with his cousin. John went to the local gas station and inquired about where the local ambulance hall was. Upon arriving, John honestly told the owner about his situation, and he offered to wash ambulances and do odd jobs to make some money. The owner agreed and even let John sleep in one of the ambulance cots. According to John Wayne Gacy's memoirs, on his first day off, he located his cousin in the phone book. He went to her house, and the first two times she wasn't there. The third time, she was just arriving back from her job. She openly told him that she was a successful sex worker. John was not bothered at all by her line of work and was honestly impressed by the amount of money she was making. She lived in a nice house with her daughter and drove a Cadillac and even had a maid. John enjoyed his time spent with his cousin as they were able to openly talk about sex, which is something that John had never experienced before. She even offered to hook him up with some of her clients, but John refused. Months had passed and John was told by his boss that if he wanted to continue working, that he would need a worker card for the city contracts. One problem, John wasn't 21 years old. The owner suggested that John take a job at the local mortuary his duty would be to work nights picking up the deceased bodies from the hospital and sometimes even the homes. John accepted the job and was able to sleep in the embalming room. It's interesting because in future interviews, John Wayne Gacy denies ever sleeping in the embalming room, but it's common belief that he only said so to defend his case. John had grown lonely away from home. He had spent his days as a pool bearer for funerals and picking up bodies at night. One incident that occurred was when John was alone one night in the mortuary. He approached a casket that contained the corpse of a little boy. Feeling lonely and curious, John crawled into the coffin. He curled up next to the boy and arranged the body so that it was lying on top of him. John grew an erection. This startled John and he scurried out of the casket. The next day, he called his mother and asked if his father would let him come back home. Back in Chicago, John knew that he had to get his life in check to please his father and eventually start his own family. He enrolled into Northwestern Business College and became a shoe salesman. John was great at his job and he got promoted soon to a superintendent at another department in Springfield, Illinois. He dressed very eloquently and received high recognition from both his coworkers and customers. In March of 1964, John met his first wife, Marilyn Myers. Marilyn's father was the owner of multiple KFC restaurants. John and Marilyn eventually moved to Waterloo, Iowa so that John could become the manager of three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants. John was a very successful manager. The community regarded him as friendly and gracious. Some of the employees even considered him too friendly. Regardless, John became a respected member of the Waterloo Junior Chamber of Commerce. This organization was known as the JCs, and it was prominent in the community that was heavily involved in volunteer work. John did so well at initiating new members into the community that he was awarded the Man of the Year Award. And in 1967, John was named Outstanding Vice President and served on the Board of Directors. Many of the members were involved in promiscuous activities, such as wife swapping, prostitution, pornography, and even consuming drugs. Around this time, John Wayne Gacy had his first homosexual experience. While enjoying a night out of drinking at a friend's house, John passed out. And when he woke up, the friend had been performing oral sex on him. John recalled that even though he wanted the man to stop, he couldn't tell him to because he enjoyed it so much. 
John Wayne Gacy and his wife conceived two children, a son named Michael in 1966 and a daughter named Christine in 1967. Of course, to the community, it was the perfect suburban family, so much so that when John's parents came to visit, John's father, John Sr., took his son aside to apologize for the years of abuse and told him that he was proud of him. John had opened up an unofficial club in the basement of his family home. It was here that he would invite younger male employees to hang out after hours. He would serve them alcohol while they played pool and other bar games. John would begin sexually harassing his guests, and when they denied his advances, he would laugh and inform them that he was simply testing their morals. In August of 1967, John sexually assaulted 15-year-old Donald Voorhees, the son of a fellow JC's member. John managed to lure the underage boy back to his basement with the promise of letting him see heterosexual stag pornography that the JCs would watch. John gave Donald alcohol and then would discuss sex with the boy. John told him, quote, you have to have sex with a man before you can start having sex with women. This was the typical routine of John Wayne Gacy. He would use it to get underage boys back to his house and sodomize them under the ruse of doing them a favor and educating them. He even gave a group of boys $50 and got them all to perform oral sex, claiming that they were involved in scientific experiments to see if homosexuality was even real. He persuaded the boys to engage in oral and anal sex, and John claimed that the entire ordeal was mutual. It was in 1968 when Donald Voorhees reported what John Wayne Gacy had done to him. John told the boy's father and the police that the sodomy was consensual. Many community members believed the master manipulator another boy came forth, a 16-year-old team named Edward Lynch. He also confirmed that John Wayne Gacy had assaulted him in the same way. While awaiting his trial on August 30th, John bribed an 18-year-old employee named Russell Schrouder with $300 to attack 15-year-old Donald Voorhees in the park with mace. Russell beat Donald in attempts to scare him out of testifying against John in court. Luckily, Donald escaped the attack and reported the incident to the police. Russell denied that he was involved at first, but then told the police that he did it at the request of John Wayne Gacy. When John took a polygraph test that he suggested to prove his innocence, he failed. Plus, obviously it was an illegal act with a minor, and John was arrested and sentenced to 10 years in prison on December 3rd, 1968. Okay, so master manipulator John Wayne Gacy was sent to prison. And because of his good standing in the community and his Man of the Year award and his arrogance, he thought he was the Grand Pooba of the Loyal Order of Water Buffaloes. And for those of you who don't know that, <laughs> that, was, that was a Flintstones reference. <laughs> when the police questioned him, he straight up said, No, give me a lie detector test. It didn't happen the way the boy was saying it. Just give me a polygraph test. I'll pass it. I'll ace it. Yeah, so he gets the polygraph test and he fails it. <laughs> and of course, John attempts to victimize himself in the situation, which is very common for serial killers. And John Wayne Gacy claimed that Donald Voorhees' father wanted to politically take him down because he wanted to be the president of the Water Buffaloes. And JC's. The JC's. <laughs> oh my God. See, I fucked myself up. I'm fucking it up for everybody. <laughs> so... The young boys, they were explaining to the authorities that John would blackmail them. And one boy even said that John tried to get him to have sex with his wife. He didn't. And then he just ended up performing oral sex on John Wayne Gacy. Prior to standing trial, John was ordered to undergo a psychiatric mental evaluation. And over a 17-day time frame, two doctors analyzed John and said that he was diagnosed with... What is it? If we were in a classroom right now, I'd be expecting everyone to be shouting it out. Come on for your cult. Antisocial personality disorder. <laughs> Which is sociopathy and or psychopathy. The Mayo Clinic defines antisocial personality disorder as mental disorder in which a person consistently shows no regard for right or wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. The mental status of John Wayne Gacy was influenced by his father being an abusive parent. Now, huge disclaimer, not everyone who is mentally and or physically abused is a sociopath or a psychopath, okay? Moving on. 
In the book titled John Wayne Gacy Defending a Monster, written by defense attorney Sam Amarante and Danny Broderick, John grew up feeling deprived as a person by his father. He had no positive male figures in his life and he watched his mother get abused as well. And this internalized anger developed into a hatred towards the world. So according to psychiatrists, the head injury from the swing incident when he was 11 years old caused him to lose the ability to use reason and decrease his ability to formulate social skills as he grew up. And that combined with being molested by his father's friend, who was a contractor, and the mental and physical abuse from his father are the reasons that John Wayne Gacy grew up to be a psychopath. Now here's something I found intriguing. Although the two psychiatrists that evaluated John pre-trial said that he was sane, there was a psychologist who disagreed, and his name was Dr. Thomas Alessio. And he testified that John Wayne Gacy scored in the top 2.1% of the population on the Weschler scale. Now, Ashley, what the hell is a Weschler scale? I'm so glad you asked. It's an IQ test. <laughs> the interpretation of an IQ test score ranges from cognitively impaired between 70 and 79, and the score goes up and anything above 130 is considered very gifted. John Wayne Gacy had an IQ of 136, which classifies him as intellectually gifted. And this psychologist, Thomas Alessio, stated that John had no major brain injuries. However, he did diagnose John with confused thinking and borderline personality disorder or borderline schizophrenia. The psychologist concluded that John Wayne Gacy was suffering from BPD or borderline personality disorder, along with other mental impairments and antisocial personality disorder. Basically, John Wayne Gacy had like the Molotov cocktail of mental diagnosis. And it was argued that John Wayne Gacy was incapable of understanding the actions of his crimes and comprehending that they were wrong. Psychiatrists, however, completely disagreed. The two psychiatrists called John Wayne Gacy a hopeless soul and that no therapy or medical treatment could possibly save him. And he was destined to become a repeat offender in society. But he was deemed sane and fit to stand trial, you guys. While in prison, John was a model inmate and he was favored by the guards and had special privileges. However, on Christmas Day in 1969, John's father, John Gacy Sr., died of cirrhosis of the liver caused by his alcoholism. And he wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. The guards were like, no, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna sit this one out, okay, bud? And this affected John while he was in prison. He was mourning his father and he spent many nights in deep grief. And he told his family and his friends that he believed that his father died as a result of his crimes. Now, to me, I think that this statement from John is bullshit and just proves that he's a master manipulator who lies to gain his favor. Because if he believed that the true reason his father died was because of his previous crimes, then, oh, I don't know, when he starts um, killing people, you'd think that his entire family would have been sent to the grave. I'm just saying, but that's none of my business. It's theorized that the death of his father may have given John that ignition to start killing people because now he is no longer trying to impress his father. Let's continue. In early 1971, after only serving 18 months in prison, John was granted parole for good behavior. He had to move back in with his mother in Chicago since his now ex-wife and children legally owned their old house. After saving up enough money and with a little financial assistance from his mother, John bought the house that would go down in history as the Gacy House at 8213 West Somerdale Avenue. Only eight months after being released from prison, John went to a Greyhound bus station and picked up a 16-year-old teenage boy. The teen was going home after spending Christmas with his aunt and uncle. John invited the boy back to his house for a place to stay. Later, he attempted to encourage the boy to have sex with him and proceeded to force it upon him. The two engaged in oral sex before going to sleep in separate bedrooms. The next morning, John seen the boy standing in the doorway holding a knife. Throwing his blankets off the bed, John lunged at the teenager. After a struggle, John grabbed the knife and straddled the boy's body and stabbed him repeatedly. Once the boy stopped breathing, John stood up. 
and he noticed that he ejaculated during the murder. Feeling a mix of excitement and bewilderment, he surveyed the scene before him. He then dragged the body into the crawl space under the basement. It was through a trap door, and it was there he buried the body. When John returned to the kitchen, he saw that breakfast had been cooking, and the teen was initially coming to wake him up for eggs and bacon. When the body was found years later, it remained unidentified, and it was only referred to as the Greyhound Bus Boy. In May of 1986, the remains were positively identified as 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy and was the first known victim of John Wayne Gacy. On June 2nd, 1972, 29-year-old John Wayne Gacy posed as an officer to lure a young victim into his car. He forced oral sex upon the boy and then let him go. The victim told the authorities and John was arrested and charged with battery, but the charges were dropped. The following month in July, John married his sister's friend, Carol Hoff. Carol had two daughters from a previous relationship and everyone loved the family. The Gacy's were always hosting block parties and everyone attended. Neighbors noticed the strange decaying smell that radiated from underneath the Gacy house. But John just told everyone that the smell was a result of runoff from a broken sewer pipe. It was also around this time that John started another job to bring in more money aside from his job at the restaurant. John decided to become a contractor. His mother thought of the name PDM, Painting, Decorating and Maintenance. The business overall was quite successful. John also saw the opportunity to hire young teenage boys who were desperate for employment, and he planned to exploit their financial needs. John was secretly sexually harassing and engaging in sexual relationships with the young teens he employed. Late at night, John would arrive home and immediately go straight into the garage. His wife, Carol, noticed, but all she knew was that she was never allowed to go into the locked area. One day, Carol found a key to the garage. As she quietly entered the forbidden room, an eerie low-lit red light illuminated the area. Her sense of smell caught the musty sweet scent of human skin laced with the smell of rot. The floor was covered in dirty mattresses and pornography. Everything was sporadically lying around in a mess. Looking at the ceiling, Carol saw her own reflection staring back at her. Her husband had installed mirrors on the ceiling. The concept of the activities her husband was engaging in quickly clouded her mind. Taking in her surroundings and having an understanding of why the garage was off limits, she turned on her heels and left. The couple at this point had agreed to stop having sex due to John's lust for men, specifically underage, but Carol was oblivious to that fact. To everyone, John Wayne Gacy was the friendly neighbor that had a successful business and was friends with many political and authority figures. His ability to charm through manipulation would be his weapon until the end. The horrendous smell that poured out from underneath the house had become common community knowledge. John explained that the decaying smell accompanied by swarms of flies was from the mice that were dying due to the water flooding. He spread 50 pounds of lime in the crawl space, but nothing seemed to really help. When his wife Carol left on a trip, John utilized this time to pour concrete over a section of the crawl space. This seemed to work a little and the flies had disappeared, but the smell remained. Once his body count increased, he was unable to control the odor. In 1975, John joined the Jolly Joker Clown Club. The members would dress up as clowns and attend children's parties and work functions. The clown persona that John created was named Pogo the Clown, combining the word Po, which was short for Polish, since that was his ethnicity. And he was always on the go, resulting in Pogo. He also created another clown character named Patches the Clown. The difference between the two, according to John, was that Pogo was the happy one and Patches was the serious one. John expressed that when he dressed up as a clown, he was able to regress back to his childhood and be silly, something he couldn't do around his father. If you search photos of John Wayne Gacy dressed as a clown, take notice of his choice of makeup, because clowns usually represent openness and gentle comedy for children. The use of circular paint around the mouth and the eyes create the mood of joyfulness. John, however, wore sharp pointed edges on his makeup and this created a more sinister ambiance. It was also in 1975 when John's mother broke her hip. His wife, Carol, traveled to Arkansas to help take care of her for a while. During this time frame, on July 30th, John kidnapped one of his male employees, 
nicknamed Johnny Bukovich. John raped and strangled him to death. He then buried the body deep in his crawl space. The parents of the 17-year-old teen had urged the police to investigate Gacy, but nothing came of it. By October of 1975, 33-year-old John Wayne Gacy had been picking up underage boys who he manipulated for sex. He did not, however, kill them. It wasn't until the following year that he would go on his murderous rampage after the divorce of his wife. In 1976, after four years of marriage, Carol decided to divorce John. She was tired of finding his homosexual pornography scattered around the house, and even finding silk male thongs that did not belong to him covered in semen. John's erratic behavior and his overbearing anger problems only added to the issues. He had admitted to her that he was homosexual and that he had no intentions of ever having sex with her again. However, in later interviews, John identified publicly as bisexual. He was, in fact, strictly homosexual at this point and had the freedom to kill without boundaries. In 1976, John Wayne Gacy kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered 13 boys. Some victims, such as 15-year-old Randall Reffitt and 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton, were part of what John considered his double murders. Randall and Samuel were killed hours apart, but buried in the same grave in the crawl space on top of each other. It is thought that John Wayne Gacy did this as a favor to them, since they were friends. John had a pattern of kidnapping and murdering his employees. On December 12, 1976, 17-year-old Gregory Godzik disappeared on the first day he worked for John Wayne Gacy. At the time of the murders, there was a 48-hour rule that declared police had to wait two days before performing any form of investigations on missing children, due to most being runaways. In the 70s, there was not many ways for police departments to share information and recognize patterns in crimes because of the lack of computer technology. After the new year, on January 20th, 1977, John murdered 19-year-old John Sick. Two months later, he murdered 20-year-old John Prestige on March 15th. Between July and December of 1977, John raped and murdered 10 victims and buried them all in his crawl space. Sadly, many of the victims had unintentionally dug their own graves. John Wayne Gacy would have his male employees go down into the crawl space and dig holes using shovels. John said that it was to help him fix the pipes that were leaking and causing the putrid smell. On December 30th, 1977, Robert Donnelly was walking around the bus station in Chicago. John had seen him and immediately took an interest in the 19-year-old student. Would you look at that? Looks like it's a little late Christmas present for Daddy. Oh, here we go. Looks like it's time for a show. Turning on his vehicle's high beams, he flashed them at Robert, and he yelled for him to show him his identification, pretending to be a police officer. Excuse me, young man! I'm going to need to see your identification. I am an officer from the Chicago PD. I wasn't doing anything wrong, officer. Listen, I need to see your identification. Yeah, it's awfully laid out, and I've been surveying the area. There are a lot of sketchy people in this time of the hour. You don't have to worry about me. I'm just waiting for a bus. Hmm. Get to the car! Get into the car! Get into the car! Whoa! Hey! Hey! Get on the floor of the car! What are you doing? What are you doing? The two drove back to John's house, and he led him into a room with a bar. Licking his lips, John looked at his victim and told him, Now listen, I am a very important person who doesn't get the respect that he has earned or he deserves. But to make you feel a little bit more at home and comfortable, I got you this nice alcoholic drink. I don't want the drink. Just try it, just try no, it a no. little. Robert immediately began coughing and choking on the alcohol that was forced into his mouth. John Wayne Gacy then began to uncuff his victim. No, no, please, ah, somebody help me! Ah! John dragged his victim's body into the bathroom where a tub was ready, full of water. John shoved Robert's head into the wall and then began submerging his head into the bathtub until Robert passed out again. When he regained consciousness, he was picked up by John and carried back into the bar room. 
A projector was turned on and began to play gay pornography. You know, I've killed girls before, but I had to stop. They were just not as interesting as killing boys. But I want to know, how does it feel? How does what feel? Knowing you're about to die. Please help me! John Mangese proceeded to urinate over Robert. After, he began forcing Robert to look at female pornographic magazines and questioning him about what he found attractive about women. When Robert confirmed that he did like women, John would beat him by punching him in the stomach repeatedly. The two began watching more homosexual pornography, and after the films were over, John retrieved a handgun from the drawer. He walked up to Robert and shoved his foot in his stomach, holding him down. John placed the barrel of the gun to Robert's head and began pulling the trigger, playing Russian roulette. When the gun finally went off, it contained a blank. Robert's heart practically stopped, and John began laughing inches away from his face, and then began choking Robert until he passed out yet again. Once Robert awoke, he noticed that his hands were cuffed behind his back. His ankles were bound, and there was a ball gag in his mouth. John then inserted a large object into Robert's rectum that caused him to fall unconscious again. The victim expressed that he just wanted to die to end the torture. This only made John feel more in power. He then threatened Robert's life and told him that if he was going to let him live, he'd have to stay quiet. Once everything was over, John drove Robert back to where he initially picked him up and left. Robert immediately went to the police, who detained John Wayne Gacy. He denied the allegations of rape and told the police that the two engaged in consensual slave sex. The police believed John, and the case was dropped. Robert Donnelly was one of the only few survivors of the killer clown. Another survivor was 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall. In March of 1978, 26-year-old Jeffrey was sitting in his vehicle when a 36-year-old John Wayne Gacy pulled up next to him in his car. The two had a brief conversation over smoking marijuana. According to Jeffrey, after two puffs, John punched him in the face and then chloroformed him. He then stuffed him into the back of his car and drove him back to his house. John had used so much chloroform to keep him knocked out that Jeffrey had burns all over his face and he had multiple foreign objects shoved into his body. Once John was finished, he chloroformed Jeffrey another time and drove him close to where he initially kidnapped him. Jeffrey went to the police covered in blood and fresh injuries. Despite all the physical evidence, investigators had nothing incriminating to go on. Jeffrey couldn't provide detailed evidence of the house or the incident. Retired judge of the circuit court of Cook County, William Kunkel, recalled, Jeffrey's story at the time was vague, saying that the victim didn't know where the house was or what it looked like. It was a very minimalist police report and nothing transpired. In the documentary, John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise, the life partner of survivor Jeffrey Rignall, Ron Wilder, said, quote, the police assumed that Jeff's encounter with Gacy was a consensual arrangement. They had no clue of how to treat a gay rape or any sort, and they didn't even think it would be possible. After being dismissed by the police on lack of substantial evidence, Jeffrey was determined to find the man who hurt him. Because of all the chloroform John used, Jeffrey was able to only remember the color of the car and the make, and that they took an off-ramp. Every night, Jeffrey went to the ramp location until he finally seen the Oldsmobile that Gacy drove. He followed him back to his house and took all the information he could back to the police. The police finally had enough to charge John Wayne Gacy with assault. John paid the bail money and he was free once again. The next five victims of John Wayne Gacy were raped, tortured, then murdered, and their bodies were thrown into the river since John no longer had room under his crawl space. John did not stop killing until 1978 when he was forced to stop. He killed five more throughout the year until his final victim, 15-year-old Robert Jerome Peast, on December 11, 1978. Robert was working part-time at a pharmacy in Des Plaines, where he first met John Mangacy. John approached the boy and offered him a job working for him that would pay more than double that what he was currently making. Robert agreed. Then John informed him that he would have to go back with him to his house to sign tax documents before he could start. Robert explained that he couldn't stay long because it was his mother's birthday and they had plans together that evening. 
Robert's mother had just arrived at the pharmacy. He then told her that he was going with a contractor about a job offer and that he would be back soon and she could pick him up. John then got the 15-year-old boy to his house where he proceeded to trick him into a pair of handcuffs and told him that he was going to die. John later told police that the boy was terrified and crying scared. He then suffocated Robert and took a business call. John Wayne Gacy explained that he kept the corpse of Robert in his bed and slept alongside him that night. He admitted that he kept the body for two days after the murder before he disposed of it in the river. He had no room in his crawl space and he already had over 20 boys buried under his house. Witnesses told police that Robert was last seen with John Wayne Gacy on December 11th. The authorities discovered that John was on parole and had previous criminal assault and sodomy charges. Officers questioned John about Robert Peast, and he got very defensive, which immediately raised alarms for detectives. The police acquired a search warrant for 8213 Summerdale Avenue to look for the missing teenage boy. When the authorities combed the house, they found multiple suspicious items, including a school graduation ring that belonged to a missing teen, John Sick, who disappeared a year earlier, marijuana, handcuffs, 18-inch dildos, two driver's licenses from two unknown males, police badges, and several articles of teenage boy clothing. In the trunk of one of Gacy's vehicles, hair matching Robert Peast was found. In the trash, they found a photo receipt from the pharmacy that Robert had worked at with a phone number on the back. The number belonged to his coworker and friend, Kim Byers. She told police that she had borrowed Robert's jacket the day he had disappeared, and she had left the receipt in his jacket by accident. It would be another witness to see John Wayne Gacy with the missing boy and the receipt tied Robert Pace to John Wayne Gacy's house. When the investigators searched the crawl space initially, they explained how when looking for graves, you look for freshly disturbed dirt. When they looked, they didn't see the disturbance in the soil. And this was because John Wayne Gacy was throwing bodies in the water at the time. So no one checked further. David Cram was an 18-year-old survivor who came forward once John Wayne Gacy was arrested. He detailed how he used to work for John at PDM Contractors, and he and another boy would dig shallow trenches in the designated spots for John, not knowing specifically why. David started working on July 6, 1976, and less than a month later in August, he moved into John's house. On his 19th birthday, the two shared drinks to celebrate. David told police that John had intended to rape him, but David was able to fight him off. After the incident, David never moved out. He stayed another month, and then once John attempted to rape him again, he finally moved out. Although he had multiple allegations and a sketchy criminal record, the police needed more to convict John. They needed a body to prove anything. The police put John Wayne Gacy on heavy surveillance and followed him everywhere. Two police officer surveillance teams were designated to watch John at all times. Team one was made up of tactical officers, Dave Heikmeister and Mike Albrecht. The stakeouts were no secret to John. He would actually walk up to the officer's vehicles in the morning and tell him what his schedule looked like. John would invite the officers for breakfast and he would even buy them drinks just to discuss his case. He would joke and ask them if they wanted to buy any drugs. He was very comfortable around them and this just proves that he had a large ego. One time while having a conversation with the officers, John made a snide joke saying, quote, clowns could get away with murder. Many things were starting to seem suspicious, such as the testimonies from survivors David Cram about digging in the crawl space. The detectives began purposely feeding John hints on them being able to acquire another search warrant for his house. Instantly, they noticed that the more pressure they put on him, that his demeanor was becoming more erratic. He went from getting four plus hours of sleep a night to practically none. They looked at three pieces of evidence. The class ring that belonged to missing boy John Sick, the photo receipt found in John Wayne Gacy's trash can with Kim Byer's phone number that proves that Robert Paste was in his house. And the final collection was due to John's own arrogance. He had invited the second surveillance team inside of his house on a cold day, asking if they wanted to have dinner with him. Once inside, while John was preparing the meal, one of the officers went to use the washroom. While he was washing his hands, the furnace turned on and the overwhelming scent of sour decomposition filled the house. The officer reported the order to his partner and told his superior that he recognized the smell of decaying flesh. This was officially probable cause 
and enough to get the second warrant. When the investigators entered the crawl space of John Wayne Gacy, they stuck a shovel in the soil. Upon the very first scoop, they found an arm. The forensic officer immediately turned and said, charge him. Around that time, the surveillance officers followed John to his attorney's office in the late hours of the evening, and they watched him enter the office building. Time had passed and the lawyers then hailed the officers over and told them to not take their eyes off of John Wayne Gacy. Understanding client confidentiality, the officers caught the hint that their man was definitely hiding something and probably just confessed to murder. While John was leaving the office and driving home, the officers noticed that he was swerving and driving erratic. He sped into a Shell gas station and went inside. He made a transaction and then left. Unsure of what transpired, Officer Hockmeister went into the gas station. The cashiers immediately handed over two bags of marijuana and exclaimed that they did not buy it and that John had just given it to them. The officers now had an opportunity to arrest John on marijuana possession and drug transactions. While in custody, John had faked a heart attack and was taken to a hospital to buy himself some time. Once John was notified that a body was found, he began confessing and even drew diagrams to where and how many bodies were in the location. Forensics excavated the entire Gacy property and found a total of 26 bodies underneath the crawl space and shallow graves. There were three buried around the yard and five were found in the river. One of them was missing teen Robert Peast. During the five-week trial, the defense team of John Wayne Gacy were pleading insanity. The prosecution were on a mission to prove that John was sane and fully responsible for his crimes. Multiple psychiatrists were trying to understand the monster who was on the stand, the man that continued to deny and recant testimonies to appear crazy. John claimed to have had a mental illness rather than being a psychopath. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yeardley explains that there is a difference between mental illness and psychopathy, saying, quote, Psychopaths are rational, and they know what they are doing, and they know what they are doing is wrong, but they decide to do it anyway. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Let's talk about the dark psychology. So during the trial, a psychiatrist testified that John Wayne Gacy was borderline with psychosexual disorders and sexual sadism and fetishism. Dr. Richard Rappaport explained that John Wayne Gacy would suffer these quick psychotic breaks that would cause his rage and murderous lust. So Dr. Rappaport said, quote, John thought that these boys were him and he was his father. End quote. Yeah, I said that. <laughs> you guys, this is so interesting. So experts believe that John was so deeply hurt by the rejection from his father growing up that he internalized this immense shame and hatred for himself. And his father was openly homophobic and John was ashamed that he was attracted to males. Plus, he would get sexual gratification when he murdered them. It's a big clusterfuck. Psychiatrists think that during Gacy's killings, he would switch to visualizing that he was his father and the victim was him as a child getting punished for not being good enough. And it is considered to be a rage against his own lust for boys and deep down knowing that he needed to be punished for his crimes. And his father fit the perfect role inside of his head. And when I was delving deeper into the madness of Gacy, I found that he used Pogo the Clown to escape into his childhood. It seems as though his father's hatred was what he became after he raped his victims. It's like he was himself while he was raping them. And then after, when he was murdering them, he became his father and was punishing himself for what he had just done. It's so crazy because he had Pogo the Clown, he had Patches the Clown, he had himself when he was raping someone, he had himself as his father killing himself while killing his victims. And, oh, it's so crazy because many of his employees were his victims and those that weren't were kidnapped by John when he was pretending to be a police officer with the alias of Jack Hanley. So let's add another personality to fucking John Wayne Gacy here. <laughs> now, Jack Hanley was actually a real person who was extremely homophobic and he was an officer that would beat local gays in the area. And John Wayne Gacy's repression had this strange jealousy of him because according to what I found, 
Jack Henley was like this muscular, big bravado kind of dude. And John Wayne Gacy was like, well, that's what I want to be. And yeah, it just went from there. During the trial, Dr. Rappaport testified during cross-examination that he theorized John had placed the bodies in his cellar because it represented the habits his father had while he was growing up, such as placing his pornography and random junk in the family's basement and saying no one could go in there. And John did that with his garage. He said his family couldn't go in there. And John pleaded that during the murders, he was not aware of what he was doing. And he called them irresistible impulses. With that, a psychiatrist on trial made an excellent point, explaining that if John Wayne Gacy did in fact have 33 irresistible impulses, then why was he digging graves in his crawl space in advance? If his memory was so spaced out from disassociating the murders, then how was he able to draw a map with all the bodies during a confession? And if during the murder of Robert Peast, John confessed that he was mid-strangulation and then received a business call and took the phone call, that sounds like you're a little bit sane in what you're doing there, bud. And the cherry on top of this absolute clusterfuck, if he was able to recall the murders by pre-planning the burial sites, then why did he never at any point ask for mental help? It's no shock to anyone that when I say that it took less than three hours for the jury to convict John Wayne Gacy of the murders. After two years on trial, John Wayne Gacy was sentenced to death on March 13, 1980, at 38 years old. He spent 14 years on death row, and John Wayne Gacy was killed by lethal injection on May 9, 1994, at 52 years old. The lead-up to the execution resembled the popularity of that of Ted Bundy. Hundreds of people came to celebrate outside of the Correctional Institute. John was given a three-drug lethal injection. During the second dose, a clog in the IV line delayed the injection, and this caused immense pain for John Wayne Gacy. It was reported to be a painful death for the killer. It is reported that the final words of the serial murderer, dubbed the killer clown, were, quote, kiss my ass while giving the middle finger. According to Karen Conti, the death row attorney, no words were actually spoken. That was the true story of John Wayne Gacy. We went there. <laughs> and what makes me shake my head is how in the 90s during a documentary that I watched about his crimes, John completely denies any involvement with the crimes. And he claims to have zero recollection of the faces of his victims. And <laughs> this absolutely kills me. This kills me. So John Wayne Gacy said this about the decaying smell from his crawl space. And I quote, The subdivision where the Summerdale house is located is built on a clay field. And when it rained, the rain would come down from both ends and would flood from one house to the other. The crawl space would fill up with water. And in 1976, I asked a landscaper, What do you do for that sour odor of the clay? The landscaper said, Spray lime and it would sweeten up the clay and you won't have that odor." End quote. According to John Wayne Gacy, that's why his house smelt, completely disregarding the existence of 26 bodies decaying underneath his crawl space. <laughs> Plus, before he died, he tried so hard to blame the media and the fucking audacity. He tried to blame his victims for making him seem like a monster. And he died denying all of his crimes. Certified fucking fruitcake, and we all hate John Wayne Gacy with a big exasperated sigh of, I fuck you. <laughs> now, a huge thank you to Fear Cult ambassadors, Jeff and his son Alex, and his two younger kids, Ben and Abby, for the amazing dramatization skills that you guys gave me. Before I even had all the audio completed and edited, I was smiling ear to ear with how much effort and how much fun you guys had doing this. It's so fun for me to be able to incorporate the Fear Cult, like now the Fear Cult, because prior it was Fear Cult podcasters. And now I'm incorporating you, the Fear Cult ambassadors. So 
If anyone is ever interested in doing a dramatization for an episode of Lullaby, all the rights reserved for me because <laughs> you are the guest, then reach out to me and we will go from there because it's so fun. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. The never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie is back, and this week it is the 2016 horror-action South Korean film Train to Busan. Now, I'm not a zombie person. I actually am not a fan of that subgenre, but this one is so damn good, and you can watch it in English dubbed if you don't like subtitles. And the plot involves a man and his estranged daughter who get trapped on a speeding train during a zombie outbreak in South Korea. And I love me a good foreign horror movie. Japanese and Korean horror, they hit different. And I think everyone can agree with me here. The YouTube horror short this week is Don't Scream. And for those of you who are new to the show, I never reveal the plot to a horror film short. I let you watch it on YouTube and you guys all get freaked out. And that was your choice. That was your doing. <laughs> I tried to scare you. Now you try to scare me. You can reach out and send me your horror movie recommendations at lullabythefearpodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram. And now the Facebook group is back up at Lullaby the Fear Podcast. So don't forget to rate and support the show. So thank you for listening to this week's lullaby. Sweet dreams. Lights out. <laughs>